Well, good morning. We are coming back to our studies in First Timothy. It's been a good um, few weeks with Michael teaching us, and we're going to pick up right from where he left on verse 6 of chapter 4, 1 Timothy 4. We hope to, to give a break for Michael every once in a while when we'll be rotating on a preaching schedule. He will do most of the preaching here, but we're thankful for this ability that all our elders um, get a chance to teach and, and preach the Word of God. So, 1 Timothy 4, and we start on verse 6. Before we get there, um, I think about um, a theologian that some of you might be familiar with, Charles Hodge. He wrote a lot of works on systematic theology, and he was a, a professor in Princeton Seminary in the 1800s. He was not only a very learned scholar and a champion of Reformed doctrine, but he was also a beloved teacher and a friend. And so on the day of his funeral at Princeton, everything closed up for celebrating his life and now that he was with the Lord. And after the service ended, a great procession followed. But out of all these uh, tributes that people were giving to Charles Hodge, it wasn't uh, the most uh, shocking one. The most fitting one was given by his colleague, the professor William Paxton. And he says, uh, when due allowance is made for his intellect and his learning, after all his chief power was his goodness. Christ, enshrined in his heart, was the center of his theology and his life. The world will write upon his monument great, but we, his students, will write upon it good. I, I, that reminds me of um, Bob Elfstrom, actually. So a minister of the gospel can receive no higher praise. The epitaph that Paxton gave to Hodge is essentially the same epitaph that Paul wanted for Timothy to deserve when he came to the end of his ministry. And that was of a good servant. Not a great servant, but a good servant of Christ Jesus. And so my hope is to challenge you today about this. This message is more uh, a preaching to myself. It is written for uh, to Timothy, for pastors, and yet we are all servants of Christ. So I, I hope to challenge you with this. The Lord has convicted me this week um, is studying this text, and I hope that he'll do the same. So let's turn to 1 Timothy 4, and it's starting on verse 6, and we'll read through verse 9. In pointing out these things to the brethren... You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only of little profit. But godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds the, the promise of the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving 
full acceptance. Gracious Father, we come to you once more in prayer because we want to be dependent on you. We know that we can't do nothing apart from you. And so we ask, Lord, as we approach your word that you would make it stand out to us and challenge us on how we're living and challenge us really to pursue this, this godliness that is being described so many times in this letter. Lord, I pray that you would keep us from any distraction and that you would help us to have clarity to the meaning of your word, but most importantly, how that relates to our lives. We're thankful for the teaching from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So as we return to our study in Timothy today, uh, I'm going to use this expression, a good servant of Christ. It's kind of the anchor for the, the next few verses, really, all, all the way through verse 16. Paul is giving these instructions to Timothy to say, Timothy, you want to be a good servant of Christ? Here are the things that you, you ought to do. And this section really is the first time that we're seeing imperatives, their commands given. Um, and so it's very practical. This phrase, uh, a servant of Christ Jesus, really covers all these verses 6 through 16. And you will remember that the key text in this epistle, uh, it's chapter 3, verse 15, that Paul says, I write so that you will know how you ought to conduct one ought to know how to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church, the living God, the pillar and support of truth. So along with that, how do we conduct ourselves in the church and how a servant of God acts? So having discussed the inevitability of the false teachers um, in verses 1 through 5 last week, uh, Michael covered that. Paul now instructs Timothy on how to be, uh, to evaluate those who are suited to be an effective minister of the Lord in the face of demonic attack. Because all these false teachings that we saw in verses 1 through 5 really has its origin um, on demonic influence. So the way to defeat the false doctrine is not only by denouncing it and pointing out to it or refuting it, but it's also by positively teaching the biblical truth. The primary focus of the ministry is to be positive, is to build up the people of God because sanctification is more than avoiding error. It's being built up in the truth. So, when Paul calls Timothy here to be an excellent servant of Jesus Christ, he is setting a standard of virtue, of, of faith and devotion and conduct that we all ought to follow. If Timothy does this, people will be delivered from heresy, and it will be focused on the positive truth that makes them spiritually strong. Um, at the end of verse 16 here, he says, Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching, preserving these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. So there is benefit in having this practical living out. 
Paul directs Timothy to consider his responsibilities by exhibiting qualities that are to characterize the ministry of the servant of God. So in our text today, what I really want to do simply is to answer this question, what makes someone godly? How does someone grow in godliness? We've seen last week with Michael that there was an attempt, they thought, well, by refuting, uh, refusing marriage or a certain diet will bring them closer to God, will make them more as a mark, as a, a mark of godliness. But as Paul wrote to the Colossians, and most of you will be familiar with this as we're going through it in our fellowship groups, these practices, all these exterior things, they only have the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion, in self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. It doesn't sanctify us. So this is not how it works. In fact, these kind of stipulations are demonically inspired. Likewise, today we must not be fooled by the achievements of human self-effort which may seem impressive on the outside, but it detracts from the grace, the gospel of grace in Christ. So after having warned Timothy of all these false teachings going on, now Paul moves on to say, Timothy, I want to instruct you how to be a good servant of God. So that word servant there, I want to draw your attention to it. Because we have seen it before in the original is the diakonos word that sometimes is translated as deacons. But in a broader sense, the word there really means a servant. It is used for anyone who serves in ministry on Christ's behalf. That's why the NIV translation puts it as a minister of Christ Jesus. So diakonos might be contrasted with another word that is used uh, for those who serve Christ, you, you probably, in your translations, you'll see a servant, right? And it, it's, it's translating both diakonos and this other word. If you have the translation, the ALSB, you will see the word slave instead. That most times is translated as servant, but it, it, it's the word doulos. It's a different word. This word slave conveys the idea of submission and subjection. But it, it makes sense then why Paul used here the word diakonos to describe servant and not the word for a slave. Because he's trying to convey the idea of serviceability, of usefulness for Timothy. Timothy, you want to be a good, useful person to God's kingdom? Here are the things you ought to do. Like Timothy, those who serve Christ are called to excellence in their usefulness to his cause. So in chapter 3, um, we see the description of those that are called to ministry, those that are elders, those that are deacons. And then for the whole church, there is instructions on how they ought to behave. Earlier, Timothy was reminded that he... Uh, by prophecies made about him, he was exhorted to not neglect the gift that God gave him to serve the church. 
And then just as the women will be preserved from falling to error by adhering to their God-ordaining role in chapter 2, here, Timothy, by his exemplary conduct, will preserve, as I just read here, both himself and the entire congregation. So just as the requirements, these are requirements for church leaders, and as I said, this passage really... uh, um, pricked me because it challenged the way I think about my serving God. But I hope that this will be related to you as well. Uh, Although the focus is primarily on those who lead the church, I want to challenge us to consider what makes us good servants of Christ Jesus. And if you and I want to become good servants of Christ, we need to pay attention to these three commands given to Timothy here in this verse. So the first of them is, you be an invested student of Scripture. Be an invested student of Scripture. He starts off here in verse 6, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. So uh, while service is not to be dominated by a negative attitude, it does mean that there is a placeful warning. And that's what Paul is doing here. You ought to be pointing out. You ought to be warning people. You ought to remind them to suggest to them where areas are dangerous. And I, I, I believe he's referring to, to the previous verses. Um, where he says here in verse 1 through 5, the Spirit explicitly says in the letter times, some will fall away from faith. Why? Because they started paying attention to false doctrine. So you teach those things, Timothy. Show them the truth. Show them the right thing so they know what the wrong thing is. The present uh, tense of of this verb here indicates that Timothy was to be continually warning his people. Paul warned them of the errors that were to come, and, but he did not, however, with an, expo- uh, an exhaustive exposition of all the errors, of all false teaching. He didn't do that. He focused more on the positive of building up their faith through the Word of God. You know what the truth is. That will equip you to know what the qu- counterfeit is. So having that strong foundation, they would be able to deal with any kind of error that came their way. So I think these things here really is referring to the previous um, teaching and warnings that Paul gave regarding these false teachings. We read here then that Paul first addresses the matter of a good spiritual diet. That Timothy ought to be continually feeding himself with the content of the gospel and the apostolic teaching. Uh, significantly enough, this uh, nourishment in the word was essential for a good minister. A good diet, a good spiritual diet makes a good minister. Paul describes Timothy's experience in two verbs here. And I want to draw your attention to them because... Normally in our English translation, we wouldn't pick up from that, but in the original, in the Greek, the the tense of these verbs really tells us about where they fit in in the whole thing. 
So the first one that I want to point out to you is the verb nourish. The verb nourish there. It is in the present participle. What does that mean? It means that Timothy ought to be doing this continuous action of being nourished by scriptures. And then the other word is to follow. Timothy, you're following on the things that you, that you have been following already. That is slightly different. It's not a present participle. It is a perfect participle. And it, it basically means that there was an action that happened prior. But it is still true for Timothy even today. So that previous action that Timothy has already been doing for a while. So let me put this in a timeline for you so you can understand it. Timothy has been closely following, because that was prior, right? Has been closely following good teaching. Presently, he is being encouraged to persevere, to be continually nourished or nurture himself in the faith. And then, and only then, Paul commands him to point out these things. And that makes sense, because that is the command. So, before Timothy is able to point out the errors, before he's able to teach others, he needs to make sure that he is learning. No one can give out without taking it in. Those who teach must be continually learning. It is the reverse of the truth that when people become teachers, they cease to be learners. No, I, I, sometimes I struggle with people that say, oh, I want to be a pastor, but I don't like teaching, or I don't like studying. I'm like, oh boy, you're, you're set up for failure because all you're going to do is to study. Now, as a believer, first and foremost, we need to love and be good students of the Word. The most effective ministers have been those who, who persevered as students of the word. 2 Timothy 2.15, a well-known verse for the Awana kids out there. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. How is Timothy going to do that? How is he going to handle the, the word accurately if he's not spending time in that word? So let me give you actually this kind of flash this out for you. Turn to Second Timothy chapter 3, and you will see these three points that I'm trying to bring here of being a good student of the Word. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, Paul uses the same word there. Now you followed what? My teaching and conduct and purpose and faith and patience and love, perseverance, and it's going to list all these godly traits that are connected to the good teaching that Paul passed on to Timothy. And then verse 14, he picks up and says, You, however, continue in these things which you have learned and became convinced of and knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from your childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So Timothy learned this previously. 
Timothy had been trained on good teaching. He was nourished in the words of faith. Nourishment describes the, the care that we have for feeding children. Right? You're, you're making sure that your baby's nourished. For, for the mamas out there, every now and then they have to walk out to the nursery to feed them every so often. Why? Because they need that nourishment. And in the same way, this nourishment is describing Timothy's upbringing by his, his parents and his godly mother and grandmother. His grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice, had nurtured him in the faith. As in 2 Timothy 1.5, he says, he had been instructed in the law of God. He probably had even probably had portions of the Old Testament memorized. He had been instructed on the attributes of God, the history of salvation, and the promises of the coming Messiah. Timothy was born and bred to be a good minister. All of this shows the necessity of good teaching at home. As a, a commentator puts it, a good upbringing is worth years of seminary. It, it prepares the sons and daughters of the church to become good servants in every walk of life. It, it will make them good neighbors, citizens, as artists, professionals, laborers, as school teachers, parents, missionaries, and ministers. End of quote. Timothy's upbringing also included the theological training that he received from the Apostle Paul. That's the words of faith there are the essentials of the gospel. That's what Paul said. You have been instructed by your family and by me. You were trained. The sound doctrine is the apostolic doctrine about Jesus Christ. And Timothy was trained in these things. A good upbringing is good, but it's only the beginning. Being trained in the faith is not just for childhood. It is for a lifetime. And since the Greek verb here for nurturing is that in the it's in the present tense, the implication is Timothy ought to continuously seek to be trained in the biblical truth. It is a he is to be a lifelong student of Christian doctrine. He still follows good teaching he received at home and at church. And similarly, us, God's servants in every age, must continually be nourished spiritually so that we'll be able to pass on this word to others also. Point out these things to other people as well because we've been nurtured on the word. This quality is basic to excellence in ministry. But sadly, is what it's, it's lacking in the church today. Much of contemporary preaching is weak and produces weak churches because it reflects a lack of biblical knowledge and a real minimal commitment to the, to the study of Scripture. For many pastors, this study is an unwelcome intrusion to their schedule. It interrupts their routine of administrative tasks that they have uh, 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 ahead of them. They study only enough to prepare for a sermon. And boy, how convicting is this? That Am I spending the time in the Word just to, to, to give to others? Is that sinking in into my heart? The result that happens is impotent sermons 
that fall on the hard hears and have little impact. I am thankful that we have good examples of men of God that are really serious about this. They don't just study for preaching. The Lord has always preserved a faithful remnant throughout church history. Most of great the greatest the greatest theologians, they were pastors. They were men that were in the trenches. But yet they were committed students of scripture. I think about the reformers, I think about the Puritans, John Owen and Richard Baxter. Well, how does the scripture relate to us? As pastors, they were avid students of scripture. Their understanding and interpretation of scripture was marked by precision. They knew how to handle and, and accurately handle the word of God. I think about William Tyndale, who was a Bible translator. He's an example of a man with a burning desire to study and understand the meaning of God's word. You know, shortly before he was martyred, this is interesting, he wrote a letter to the governor-in-chief asking for some items. He, he was asking for some items, and he asked for a warmer cap, a candle, a piece of cloth to patch his leggings as he was feeling cold. But he says, but above all, I beseech and entreat your clemency to be urgent with the procurer that he may kindly permit me to have my Hebrew Bible my Hebrew grammar, and my Hebrew dictionary, that I may spend time in that study. I mean, when was the last time that you took the time to understand the meaning of words in Scripture? We need to have the same desire, the same compa being compelled in the same way to know and to be nourished in the Scriptures. Like a baby yearning for his mother's milk, we need to yearn for understanding the meanings of Scripture. A good servant must read the Word, study, study it, meditate on it, and master its contents. Only then he can be approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed because he's able to accurately handle the Word of Truth. So, First point is, we need to become good students of the Word. And as we do, then we learn how to discern and avoid false teaching. That's the, the next command here in 1 Timothy. So discern and avoid false teaching. Chapter 4, and looking at verse 7 here, the beginning of verse 7, Paul says, But have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. The flip side of being strong in the word is avoiding, it's avoid false teaching. A good servant is committed to the study of scripture, is correspondingly uninterested in and unwilling to have his strength sapped by ungodly teaching. So essential to a healthy spiritual diet is the rejection of spiritual junk food. Here described as worldly fables. The next imperative, the next command given by Paul to Timothy is strong, is have nothing to do with this. 
meaning reject these things, put them away. The trash that was coming from the false teachers, that was godless, and it was radically opposite to the sacred words of God. We read here that these false teachings were worldly, and that word is translating um, what describes what is radically separate from what is holy. That worldly is the opposite of holy. It could be translated as unhallowed. It refers to anything that contradicts the word of God. And then the next word here to describe, used to describe these teachings is fables, which translates the Greek word mythos, from which our, we have our English word myth. Such fables are the opposite of biblical truth. And Paul even sarcastically described these fables as not demeaning old women. It's an expression there. Women were not usually allowed the educational opportunity that men had during that time. So this phrase comes from such a situation, the epithet, was commonly used in the philosophical circles as a, term, as a term of disdain for a viewpoint lacking credibility and thus appealing only to uneducated and unsophisticated and perhaps even senile matrons. People that didn't have education, that didn't have much instruction, which is very different and then nowadays I look at some of our, our senior citizens here and they're so smart and such good students of scripture. But these kind of teachings, these kind of fables, no intelligent, intelligent man would hear it at all. The Ephesians, when they heard these fables of old women, they, they, they caught on it. They knew what, was, what Paul was trying to get at here. More specifically, these worldly fables were quite a concoction of a junk of spiritual food. Here's some of them. There was this primitive history of the Old Testament. They would get a little bit of Bible, right, a little bit of Scripture in there, and they would overlay it with ridiculous legends and genealogies were giving an absurd uh, symbolism, a lot of speculation. And, and then it was sugar-coated with demon-inspired asceticism. Don't touch that. Don't do this. Don't do that. That promised a spiritual superiority through sexual and dietary abstinence. Junk teaching. Reject that. Run from it. Clear your mind from all that junk. Beloved, I, I worry when I hear that you're reading a book. Because, and I, I praise the Lord that most of you are very discerning. And I get comments from you, well, I'm reading this author here, and I realize that he's not so good anymore. Under the guise of advanced theological education, in academic erudition, many men's love of the truth has been destroyed. And once a clear mind has been hopelessly muddled, the, the damage is already done. We all need discernment. Never in history information was so accessible 
You can find sermons online. You can buy books anywhere. You order Amazon. Tonight, you can have it in your hands. But it's all a mixed bag. Things that have a form of godliness, but it's all junk. I think how, how about how much I hear of false teaching when I'm counseling people. And the stuff that they read and, and the things that they believe because they didn't use their discernment. So for Paul, if he's instructing Timothy here to be a good servant of God, he's saying, you know, you flee from these things. There's no place for foolish, silly myths. There are, in reality, doctrines of demons. The good servant maintains his conviction and his clarity of mind by exposing himself to the word of God, not to the demonic lies that assault the Bible. I mean, so much psychobabble is in Christian literature today. Oh, you gotta, you gotta love yourself first before you can love others. That is self-esteem. We already love ourselves too much. Reject that teaching. So, be discerning of false teaching. Discern and avoid false teaching. And that leads us to our final point here. And that is, we need to seek to be disciplined and discipline ourselves toward godliness. To discipline ourselves toward godliness. So as Paul makes a contrast here, instead of, of pursuing and listening to these, all these babble and all these junk, refuse that. He says, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit. But godliness is profitable for all things since it holds the, pro the promise for the present life but also for the life to come. And this is so important that Paul is saying this is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. We are being called here really to exercise spiritually. The call to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness is quite a dramatic one. We, maybe the, our reading don't, don't, doesn't convey this, but the word discipline is a translation of the Greek word guminos, which means naked. And it was the, the word used to describe the gymnasiums, the place where the athletes went to train. They would take the clothes off so they wouldn't be hindered by anything and they would train. Obviously, that was a, a bad place, later became a, a place for homosexuality, and it was just bad. But that word, exercise and, and discipline yourself and train yourself, it still carries this sense of, of training and, and physical training. Not as, uh, you know, it, it, it conveys this gym idea, but he's not talking about bodily sweat. He's speaking of a spiritual sweat, a holy spiritual sweat. As a commentator put it in this way, um, gymnasticize, that's how he translated the word, is to discipline, to exercise, to work out or train yourself for the purpose of godliness. It conveys the feel of what Paul is saying here. Run until you feel your feet are like lead. And then you choose to sprint again. 
And you keep going. Pump iron until your muscles burn, until another rep is impossible. Then you do more. That's what he's conveying here, but spiritually. Now, Paul wasn't speaking of, it makes clear to us that his focus with this illustration was not to encourage people to exercise physically, but to exercise spiritually. It is clear that Paul really focused on the practical implications of being nourished in the South teaching. The godliness of his disciples was an intense concern for the apostle. So much so that 15 occurrences of this word godliness here, they are all in the New Testament. Uh, out of these 15 in the New Testament, 13 of them are on the pastoral epistles. So First and Second Timothy and Titus. Most of the occurrences of godliness appears there. And then just in First Timothy alone, this word godliness appears nine times. So there is an importance that Paul is trying to bring to Timothy. You need to train yourself for this purpose. For Paul, godliness is no static or stained glass word. It is an active obedience that springs from a reverence, awe, reverent awe of God. Godliness is not piety as we generally think of it. Uh, you know, I, the, the translation for this word godliness in Portuguese is, is piety. And I think as a kid, I, what I would picture, oh, this person is really pious. I would just imagine someone with their holding hands and their eyes glazing off. Is that, that's not piety. It's an active. It's not a, a laying down, oh, look how they, they, they look. The godly people among us are those people who are, whose reverent worship of God flows into obedience throughout their week. They live out what they sing. They live out what they study. Only God-struck doers of the word can rightly be termed godly. Additionally, true godliness is rooted in the mystery of Christ. Now, I want to draw your attention to the previous chapter here. We've been studying for this hour that we need to look at the surrounding context, right? The verses before, the verses after. So chapter 3, verse 16, does Paul say there, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And then he goes on to talk about Christ. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed, in, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. What is Paul saying here? Jesus is our source for godliness. Jesus is the essence and the source of godliness. He lived in godliness. And now, as an ascended Lord, he gives us godliness. Godliness is not a, an external, but an inner power to live a godly life. Think in terms of 2 Corinthians 5.17. 
But we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old things have passed away and the new have come. Now I have this power to please God that I didn't have before. The mystery of Christ makes godly, godliness possible. Jesus strikes us with awe and then enables us to actively obey him. That's why Paul delivers an scathing attack on those who are, were promoting asceticism as the path to godliness through abstinence from marriage or certain foods. It made Paul mad. <laughs> if you read it in, in verse 1, they're strong words, right? Things taught by demons. It assails the teachers as hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. What really Paul was trying to get at here is that for those who thought that discipline and uh, self inflicted pain would cause them to be sanctified that was false teaching that wasn't coming from the Lord Christ is our source of godliness we can't muster muster up enough strength and energy to battle sin to become godly what a blasphemy it is to teach that things that God has declared good must be rejected in order to become godly. What a slam on the work of the exalted Christ. So confronted with the force of such fearsome, fearsome denunciation of asceticism, we might conclude that we must steer clear of all bodily disciplines that, came, that claim to promote godliness. So, what kind of discipline is he talking about here? It is not physical discipline. It is not inflicting pain, stopping eating some foods. That's not how you grow in godliness. One might object and say the word discipline sounds a lot like legalism, doesn't it? Well, you discipline yourself. It sounds like legalism. But such thinking is mistaken because here's the difference. Legalism is self-centered. But discipline is God-centered. The legalistic heart will say, I will do these things to merit favor with God, to gain favor with God. But the disciplined heart says, I will do these things because I love God and I want to please him. It's a huge difference. The disciplined heart seeks to do what is pleasing to God, not for his own benefit, but because he loves the Lord. Paul knew this difference well, and he never gave an inch to the legalist, even while challenging Christians to train themselves to be godly. Paul brought legendary disciplined energy to his service of God and even viewed his labor as a, a product of free, free grace. You can turn there, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. So to counteract this understanding that godliness is obtained by self-works, Paul is thinking, you know, I, I'm mature, 
I have grown spiritually. I continue to grow spiritually. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, he says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored. Now, that's hard work. I labored even more than all of them, yet I, not I, but the grace of God in me. So when you look at the life of someone who is godly, they don't get the glory for that godliness. God gets that glory because it is by his grace that we achieve or attain any form of godliness. So what is so important to note here is that to train yourself to be godly in its context refers primarily to training ourselves in and through Scripture, by the Scriptures, for the purpose of godliness. Our diet is to be the Scripture, and we are to exercise ourselves in them. Okay, so this is what it says in James, that I should count all joy when I'm going through suffering. So I am going to live this out. That's godliness. It's picking up the truth of God, applying to how you live. In Paul's days, as in our own, there was a great emphasis on bodily discipline. While helpful, such discipline, we read here, is only of little profit. Paul is showing that it is limited, and there's two aspects to this limitation. It is limited in the extent of it. You all know, you know, I, I exercise too, I go to the gym. But it doesn't matter how hard I try, I can't perfectly be fit. I can't perfectly be healthy at all times. There's a limitation to that, and there's a limitation of of duration. How long does the, the results last? You stop working out for a month, you will see it. And there's more. We age. We can't keep up. What you can do as a 40-year-old is not the same thing that you can do as a 20-year-old. And what you can do as a 60 or even 80-year-old, it's not the same thing that you can do when you were in your 40s. Also, we can get sick and, and terribly sick. We also might get in an accident. So there is a limitation. doesn't matter how hard you try to keep that body sculpted or cared for or healthy. Our hope is not on this earth that our body will be perfected. On the other hand, then, godliness is profitable for all things since it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Unlike bodily discipline, godliness is profitable for the soul as well as for the body. There's, there's blessings. I, I mean, just take notes here. We're not going to read it here. But when you get home, read Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. And you'll read there a description of a person who spends time in the Word and how that even affects the way they live. 
They're healthier <laughs> because they are being transformed by the words of truth. But it primarily brings blessedness for all eternity. So that disciplined workout for years that you might have will end up eventually. But godliness won't. You can't take that works out body to heaven. You're going to get a brand new one even better. <laughs> but guess what? Godliness, you can take it with. Godliness actually is a means of great gain. Actually, Paul describes it in verse 6 of uh, chapter 6 of First Timothy. Where false teachers were thinking, oh, this is how, you know, we, we actually have gains. And they're thinking financially gains. But Paul says here, um, in constant friction between, verse 5, constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But Paul is saying, you know, godliness is actually a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Because they're thinking, oh, godliness, it has to do with how much I can make. And like, no, you can be content. That is true godliness. So axiomatic is this truth in verse 8 here that Paul calls it a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. A trustworthy statement is a self-evident, obvious statement it is something that is very clear for those to those who hear. Now, some might think, okay, this trustworthy statement maybe is referring to the next thing that Paul is saying, verse 10 here, for if for this reason we labor and we strive. The thing is that an axiomatic statement, a, a statement, a trustworthy statement, there is a lesson in that statement to be taught. It's a theomatic that believers are to be disciplining themselves for godliness. Why, why is this a, a statement, an important statement? Because of the promise of eternal life. The promise of eternal life, of the eternal value that godliness have. Godliness, not fame, not popularity, not reputation, is the pursuit of a good servant of Christ who must be an example of spiritual virtue to their flocks. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me just as I am of the Lord. So Paul is encouraging Timothy, Timothy, work hard. Train yourself, discipline yourself to godliness. As useful as it is for the present life, godliness holds even more promise for the future. Christians have the best of both worlds. We have value in every way, but both for the present and for the future. When it comes to Christian character, you can take it with you to heaven. Godliness is one thing that a person can take from his life from this life to the next, it lasts forever. This makes the spiritual training much more valuable than any physical training. 
There's nothing wrong with you caring for your health. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying it. Paul used this analogy, very similar. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He's speaking here in, in athletic terms. Obviously, he's writing for a region that's predominantly Greek, so we had the Olympic Games in Athens, and Corinth also hosted some of them. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, he says, you know, observe those that are training, right? Those that are competing. He says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Nobody goes to a race thinking, you know what? I'm just, I don't really expect to win. I really don't. No, they're, they're going because they're planning to win. They might not be first, but they want to be there in the first positions, the first places. But it says, run in such a way because you want to win. And everyone who competes in the games exercise self-control in all things. They then do receive a per- to receive a perishable wreath. But we are imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without a name. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I buffet my body. I discipline my body to make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself would not be disqualified. It's an interesting the connection there. Paul is saying, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to be preaching something that I am not actively pursuing. So I want you guys to actively pursue this because I am doing this. I am in this with you. Not every athlete who trains for the Olympics wins a medal or a laurel wreath as it was in Paul's day. But everyone who trains to be godly will gain an eternal crown of glory. You're guaranteed to win it. To put this in doctrinal terms, there is a connection between sanctification in this life and glorification in the life to come. Sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit does in our lives to make us more godly. Glorification is the work of the Holy Spirit will do in the next life to make the the believer gloriously godly. These two works of the Spirit, sanctification and glorification, cannot be separated. The godliness begun in this life and it will be perfected in the next. Sanctification is the root of glorification and glorification is the fruit of our present sanctification. So godliness holds promise for the present life, but also for the life to come. Paul's words remain so relevant for today in a world where many indulge in self-centered hedonism or egregious or not-so-egregious materialism. 
he gives instructions. Remember that he gave instructions to the women saying, you know, don't focus on putting on jewelry on yourself or drawing attention with outward appearance and elaborate hairstyles or jewelry. In the same way, man should also avoid this undue preoccupation with body sculpting. Bodily discipline has little benefit. This is something I realized, and it doesn't matter how much time we spend on it, it will only last a little longer. I, I had to do my surgery, and I, it was amazing how quickly I, I lost weight during that time that I couldn't exercise. And it's just, we can't hold it. We can't keep it. Why do we spend so much time with thinking that? On the other hand, sometimes we get so captivated by other interests and activities. It might not be that you're really into fitness, <laughs> but you might be obsessed with eating healthy, what to eat, not to eat. You might spend a lot of time in hobbies. People put so much effort in learning languages or learning how to play a certain game. Are you invested just as much, if not more, because you realize there's more benefit into godliness? You won't mature. Maturity doesn't come by default. In the same way that fitness doesn't come without physical training, you won't be mature spiritually if you're not putting the effort to discipline yourself. And that's, that's Paul's tim uh, call to Timothy. Timothy, you go and pursue this godliness. You train yourself. Turn to 2 Timothy 2. We have just two more passages here. Second Timothy chapter 2. And we're looking at first different letter, but Paul brings back that athletic or bodily training imagery. He says in verse, starting on verse three, Timothy, suffer, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And then he turns and says, also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive the share in his crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So Paul likens the spiritual discipline to the same discipline that a soldier needs, that an athlete needs. Such discipline is necessary for victory in war or in the games. The lack of spiritual discipline is the primary reason, and listen to this, it is the primary reason why so many spiritual leaders fall into sin and why so many believers fall away because they're not using, utilizing the means of grace, fellowship with other believers, reading scripture, prayer, encouragement, 
mutual encouragement with other believers. So I want to leave you with this encouragement. You want to be a good servant of Christ Jesus? Be an avid student of Scripture. Avoid false teaching. And train yourself, discipline yourself for godliness. Turn to 2 Peter, and we'll, we'll pray after this. I'll leave you here with this encouragement. In the context of the scriptures being given to us as God's great promises, it says that it is through his scripture that we acquire godliness, that we grow in godliness. It's not a one-and-done work. Second Peter chapter 1, he says, on verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us, what? Everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through the true knowledge of him who called us into his glory and excellence, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. You want to be a godlike person? You want to be godly? Do you want to look like Christ? You want to partake of his nature? You do these things. Now, for this very reason, also applying all diligence, right, brings the discipline element there. In your faith, supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They will render you neither useless or unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you want to grow in godliness? Do you want these godly traits to be part of you? And have them increasing? You seek him. But on the other hand, if you don't take this to heart, he says... For he who lacks these qualities is blind and short-sighted, having forgotten the purification of his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about this calling and his choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you know that we are imperfect servants, that we are many times short-sighted and we're thinking just on this earth here when you call us to fix our mind on the things from above, the things which have eternal value. Lord, we know the frustration that it is to live for our own pursuits on this earth. We're thankful for bodies that can work, the bodies that can do physical exercise. But most importantly, we are thankful 
that you'll have a much better and greater promise for those who seek you. Lord, I pray that you would challenge us to take these things to heart, Lord, to not be neglectful. We're just hearers of your word, but doers. Help us in our prayer life, Lord. Help us in our personal Bible study. Help us in our mutual encouragement of each other. As long as it is called today, Father, helps us not to be deceived by our own sin. Lord, and keep the servants faithful, your servants faithful, both those who are in leadership as all your servants, Lord, that they serve you in any capacity. We pray for this grace. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.